this is Parissa and this is Kaylin. And so we just decided to start this podcast because there's a lot of things that we wish we could talk to the community about that we don't necessarily always have the time for or we don't have, uh, let's be honest, the funding for. So we were like, why not start a podcast? Because that's what all the cool kids are doing now. And I have been so excited about this podcast because I just always want to start a podcast and now we're finally doing it. So... Uh, Kaylin, do you want to kind of introduce what we're going to be talking about today? Yeah, so throughout our podcast, we're going to be doing different topics around issues around identity, um, inclusion, diversity, a lot of the stuff that aligns really well with our mission for the Office for Multicultural Learning. Um, And today we're actually going to be talking about language and identity and talking about how important language is to someone's identity or, you know, how you might gain or not gain membership into certain groups because of the languages you may or may not speak. Mm -hmm. And this podcast episode especially was kind of like sparked by the fact that we have a difficult dialogue coming up on the 31st of this month. Um, And it's about language. And because it's kind of, you know, an abstract topic and maybe a lot of people were intimidated by how to approach it or how to like participate in a difficult dialogue about it, we thought it would be a good idea to have this topic be our first podcast episode just so we can kind of use this as a primer um, to help people kind of get some background on uh, what they would hear during the difficult dialogue or maybe what they would want to like bring to the difficult dialogue. So um, yeah, okay we can start with the background. So just to give a brief definition of language, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, language, a system of conventional spoken, manual, or written symbols by means of which human beings, as members of a social group and participants in its culture, express themselves. The functions of language include communication, the expression of identity, play, imaginative expression, and emotional release. And the scientific study of language is linguistics, and. Uh, We want to come back to this maybe later in another podcast or later in this episode, just depending on how it goes, where the crossover of science and language is interesting because science has been used as a tool of oppression, marginalization, and just, you know, a general gatekeeping measure because a lot of marginalized communities maybe don't have the resources or the opportunities that they would need to enter the higher scientific community. And so it's also really important to keep that in mind um, because these are all tools that have been used to perpetrate, you know, centuries of oppression um, in every way you can imagine, basically. So, Caitlin, do you want to? Yeah, so there are a lot of different languages spoken around the world, around 5,000 to 7,000 languages, which is a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, you're looking at way too many to really count it's even a the gap between those two mm-hmm. that range is huge um and who knows about the languages that we might not even know about mm-hmm. um coming from i guess you could say like a western perspective um and there's like you know of course arbitrary distinction between certain dialects when you look at things like jamaican patois versus creole mm-hmm. uh and things like that yeah and so language, because it's one of those things that is hard to track um, and hard to kind of like monitor, especially because of all the differences throughout history, um, 
but I think scientists have basically determined that they think it originated when early hominids, and hominids being, hominins, my bad, hominins being any member of the zoological tribe, hominini, which is from the family hominidae order primates, of which only one species exists today, and that being us. Um, and, it, and it originated with them, and when they gradually started changing their primate communication systems, acquiring the ability to form a theory of other minds and a shared intentionality, and that's according to Michael Tomasello in his uh, book, The Cultural Roots of Language. So, Kaylin talks about um, how, Kaylin and I have talked before about how race and ethnicity are socially constructed and I think, you know, a lot of people would come to that consensus, too. I think it's a fair It's academically, you know, yeah. supported by, across multiple disciplines. Exactly. And I think something that kind of is evidence for this is the whole concept of eugenics and how in the past they would try to, like, look at an African skull and then look at, like, the skull of a white person and then look at the tiny like differences that would be between these two skulls that are, you know, that they're using to be kind of like representations of that race. And then whatever differences they found, they would attribute it to being, you know, because African people were um, biologically less than mm -hmm. or less perfect, quote unquote, than um, white people. And so, yeah, I mean, you could, you could spin evidence however you want to, and they used to do that. And so we know that there's no biological difference and that these two concepts, race and ethnicity, are both socially constructed. And so Kaylin posed a really interesting question. Um, do you want to kind of get into that? Yeah, so if we're looking at race and ethnicity as two social constructs, um, thus being not, you know, like Pris was talking about, grounded in real, like, any biological, you know, distinctions between groups of people, does that mean language is also included in the cons social construction of these aspects of identity? Mm -hmm. that, be that meaning, is language a necessary aspect for certain people to identify with a certain race or a certain ethnicity um, in a certain group of people? Really kind of a big question that I personally don't necessarily have a very clear answer on because you're looking at categories and at some point a lot of people argue that you need to have certain like hard lines to follow um, I mean I have my own like personal experience with language and identity it's definitely different I would say than a lot of other people mm -hmm. um, but yeah it's just a big question of is language included in our social construct of these identities yeah, and I think just to kind of like go back to the larger question of like, is language included in the social construction of identity? I definitely think so, because if you think about it, language is something that is so like abstract, it's almost hard to wrap your mind around it. And when you start thinking about like, why am I, you know, like speaking English the way that I'm speaking it? Or why is it that different languages are like set up differently so that, you know, like, the sentence structure is different. And I think all of this kind of goes back to just kind of like knowing that we're tiny humans on a tiny planet in the middle of this enormous galaxy and just kind of trying to like ground ourselves in what we can kind of like self-determine when it seems like 
at least back then when languages were kind of like really coming out um, and emerging from different groups, I think it was definitely something that they were doing in an effort to kind of like solidify their community and then also know that there might be a lot of things that are going on around us that we don't control or we have we have no understanding of but at least here's like some words that we can you know control so yeah um and then we were talking about briefly before about how language is a barrier to access membership of certain groups and I think it would be helpful for like the listener to know kind of where we're approaching this from because language is a very personal thing and so I um, I'm Middle Eastern North African and I have always grown up in a house where multiple languages were spoken so when I was younger I knew French Farsi and English and Farsi being like my native language and um, now you know in college i've picked up spanish i am working on arabic and um, french is not really a language that i'm comfortable speaking anymore but just like in addition to like farsi and english i think i would say you know that i probably have like a better grasp of foreign languages than the average person right and it's interesting because languages have always been something that comes very easily to me and it feels like I don't really have to put in much effort to like either maintain my fluency or to like pick up new mm -hmm. vocab and it just seems like something that is almost like breathing kind of um but Kaylin do you want to mm -hmm. maybe talk a little bit about your like language background also yeah so I grew up in a household so back it up I am both Japanese and Vietnamese uh born in the U.S kind of in this weird, I always occupy this weird space on one side of my family, on my Japanese side, we're multi-generational in the US, so I'm the fourth generation of my family to be in the United States, whereas on my other side of the family, my Vietnamese side of the family, I'm actually part of the first generation born in the US. Um, so it's been kind of a, it was weird space in terms of just like pure identity, like level of like, what am I mm. sort of thing occupying my mind it was a lot growing up. Um, but then language, in terms of that at home, we only spoke English. Um, my dad was also born in the U.S. He was born in the middle of Washington State, and probably the probably the widest you know spot in the Pacific Northwest possible. <laughs> um, so English was always um, his language, and he never really had to pick up another language. They were the only like Asian family in their little town, so they had to use English to interact with everyone else. Um, my mom, when she had moved here from Vietnam, uh, she, you know, had the whole experience of trying to learn English while going to school um, and things like that. And, you know, me and my dad, who only spoke English, mm -hmm. naturally, we ended up speaking English as a family uh, together. I didn't really pick up any foreign languages, I would say, until probably I'm not even very comfortable using it anymore. Um, I learned French from seventh grade all the way through. Um, my sophomore year at Santa Clara, mm -hmm. haven't really practiced it in a while, <laughs> so my fluency is close to zero. But I think what's interesting for me in terms of language, I always get asked the question when I tell people, yeah, I'm Japanese and Vietnamese. Their first question is always, well, do you speak Japanese? And I'm like, no. And they're like, well, do you speak Vietnamese? And I always have to say, 
no. Mm. <laughs> I'm just like the then followed by that awkward pause of like, okay, and just like no one saying anything. Um, and are these usually Asian people who are asking you whether you speak? Um, it's generally everyone. I think. Gotcha. It's definitely. I definitely get a weird look from, mm-hmm. I would say, a lot of people, but especially a lot of different Asian Americans, especially those who are, you know, children of immigrants, because a lot of my friends who were children of immigrants grew up speaking the language with their parents, mm-hmm. um, their parents' mother language. Mm-hmm. I did not. Um, and so it's kind of like that was like a weird point of contention. But I always remember um, when we were looking at language as a barrier to access membership, mm-hmm. I always remember going back to a story that my mom always tells me and my sister was when we were really young, I was probably in kindergarten, I think, at that time, my mom wanted to put my sister and I into Vietnamese school. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of Vietnamese schools in San Jose because there's a huge population of Vietnamese Americans. Um, and <laughs> she took us to the school and was like, I want to enroll my daughters. and I want them to learn Vietnamese because I can't really teach them. Yeah. Um, and they were like, okay, great. Well, do they speak Vietnamese? And my mom was like, well, no, that's why I'm taking them to school. And they're like, sorry, we can't give them a spot because oh, wow. they need to be able to speak and understand what we're saying because we teach in Vietnamese. But it's a school. Know, right? Oh my God. What? <laughs> and after that, it was just kind of like, well, I tried. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, like, what else is your mom going to do? Right. And I, I think it's really interesting because. I actually have a very similar experience in that when I was growing up, you know, like, because my family, uh, we lived in the Midwest and we lived in the Mm -hmm. South. And when I was about to go into sixth grade, we moved to California. And so when we like entered the Bay Area, Mm -hmm. it was interesting because like for the first time since we had come to America and I like my parents and I immigrated to America when I was five, we were actually like surrounded by like a pretty large, um, Persian community mm-hmm. or Iranian American community, um, and that's like I would say the primary ethnicity that I identify as is, you know, like I know I have North African history and other Middle Eastern history, but because both my parents are Iranian mm-hmm. and we speak Farsi, and I've always been very submerged in Iranian culture, I'm always like, yeah, I'm Iranian, and then anyone else who wants to know like the longer story. Mm-hmm or the longer version of like my ethnicity or race, I always like tell them that I'm North African, Middle Eastern. Um, But we came here and there were, like you were saying, multiple Mm -hmm. different Persian American or Iranian American schools where they would teach you how to read and write in Farsi. And like, it was structured like schools, how Mm -hmm. schools would be in, you know, like elementary classes (laughs) when kids are going to these schools um, in like their native country to learn how to read and write and whatever and like it was interesting because for god I want to say like five years me and my sister went and I remember there was never ever a time (laughs) in the five years that we went that we were like we had our homework ready to go Mm -hmm. and like we weren't like rushing to like get it done before we went and we were like actually happy it was literally like (laughs) my dad was taking us to jail the way that me and my sister would like do everything we could to stall getting in the car and then we would complain the entire way there and we would like sit there and we would talk in class and we wouldn't really pay attention or we just weren't there to learn Farsi (laughs) and eventually it was it was literally like torture and so my mom was like I don't want them to be 
like tortured into mm-hmm. learning yeah. and maintaining this language. Um, and it was really interesting because my sister is very different than I am, and it's just us. It's just the two daughters. But as soon as I stopped going to this like Farsi school, I was so interested in learning like Farsi and really becoming like fluent and like reading and writing and mm-hmm. all of that. And I would actually work by myself and then mm-hmm. I would have my mom like read what I wrote and check mm-hmm. if it was right. And that's how I'm fluent in <laughs> reading and writing Farsi now. And I think it's interesting because mm-hmm. my sister is like doesn't know how to read and write at all, would not be able to tell you the the difference between like the letter N and M <laughs> in Farsi. And she doesn't even speak. Like she speaks wow. with an accent. Like, Mm -hmm. imagine the whitest person you know trying Mm -hmm. to speak Farsi, and that's how it rolls off her tongue, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's just crazy because, like, I don't know. I just think that once you lose it, it's hard to get it back. Mm -hmm. And then, like, once you go back to Iran and you're trying to communicate with people, there definitely is a barrier, Mm -hmm. and it's not gonna be easy for you to get back into that Mm -hmm. into like that circle of acceptance Mm -hmm. especially when she's not even like you know really talented at Mm -hmm. like picking up languages or remembering them if she's Mm -hmm. not practicing them yeah that's like that's what I was wondering was is there within like certain groups do you is there a different like way that people react like you like being able to speak and read and write versus like your sister who doesn't necessarily have that same grasp on the language yeah definitely I would say it's almost like a like a favoritism thing Mm. where there's been situations where um my entire family is like at a family event or like a family friend party or whatever and um just me being able to talk with them in Farsi and converse with like older adults where maybe a lot of their own children don't have that fluency Mm -hmm. or they're not like so keen to be you know, wanting to talk in Farsi Mm -hmm. or whatever, especially in public. Like, I remember when I was younger, I did not want my parents to speak Farsi to me in public at all. Mm -hmm. I only wanted them to speak English to me, and I would be embarrassed, right? Mm -hmm. And so now, I think, like, I've realized how, how, like, unreasonable I was being, and Mm -hmm. it's like, why? Why would I not want Mm -hmm. my parents to speak to me in their mother tongue and my mother tongue Mm -hmm. when a lot of people don't eat, like they can't pick up a second language just because Mm -hmm. it's so difficult for them, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And, yeah, I definitely think so because most people in, you know, like, my family and friend circle know that I can speak and read and write, and it's one of those things that's always very praised. And Mm -hmm. so it's like, oh, that's so good, you know, make sure that you never lose those abilities. Um, And even, I don't know if you remember, but the Persian New Year that we had Mm -hmm. last year here, uh, we had uh, Persian New Year, which is... Noruz, and that was in mid-March, and we had different faculty and staff members who were Persian and Iranian-American coming in, and, you know, when I would talk to them in Farsi, they were pleasantly surprised, and I think that it definitely is almost like a hierarchy, mm-hmm. but, like, a hierarchy in the sense of people who are, you know, in our generation, and they, you know, maybe were brought up in America mm-hmm. surrounded by white people, or at least if not just white people, you know, different ethnicities and diversity in terms of race and culture Mm -hmm. and stuff like that, it definitely is something that is commended. Um, 
and just I've only seen you know from watching people interact with my sister how much it's something that is valued mm -hmm. um, but I definitely think it a lot of the reason why people do play favoritism when it comes to like me knowing the language versus my sister not knowing it is because that's how a lot of people associate uh, culture being preserved mm, you know yeah. yeah so I don't know I just think it's interesting because uh, even like Dr. Griffin mm -hmm. you know I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, Dr. Griffin in the ethnic studies department she's awesome we love her she is the inspiration for this podcast by yeah. shout her out <laughs> shout out Dr. Griffin you're awesome but she was telling me you know she I don't remember if she said if she speaks or not but I remember I wanted to do like a second language uh, core requirement without like fulfilling that requirement without actually taking a class because I was mm -hmm. like Girl, I've taken Spanish for so long. I know <laughs> Farsi. I know English. Mm -hmm. I know some Arabic. Like, let's get this ball rolling. Yeah. I don't want to take another class. You have more class. than a second language. <laughs> exactly. And so I was reaching out to different faculty and staff members who were Iranian that I thought might, you know, speak and be able to read and write Farsi enough to be able to, like, you know, grade my exam. Mm -hmm. And I remember I reached out to Dr. Griffin, and she, I think she said that she didn't um, read or write, so she wouldn't be able to assess that. But also, I, I'm interested to see, where was I going with this? <laughs> I totally <laughs> lost what I was, why were we talking about Dr. Griffin? And, oh my god. It was a second language requirement. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So, I, I wonder what, uh, maybe people in her generation, uh, what their experience mm -hmm. is with kind of, maybe like, yeah, they can speak, and they understand, and maybe they're even fluent in speaking, but they don't read and write, and I think Especially for a uh, language, like Eastern languages, especially mm -hmm. Middle Eastern languages, where it's totally different. Like, you're writing from right to left. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I get my directions kind of messed up sometimes. Um, yeah. yeah, right to left, and sentence structure is completely different. Alphabet is, like, unrecognizable compared <laughs> to English, you know? I think it's it's one of those things where the, they expect you to read and write mm -hmm. almost as much as they expect you to understand and speak, yeah. you know? So yeah, I'm just, I would be curious to hear like, you know, at least in, in like the scope of like Farsi, you mm -hmm. know, what Dr. Griffin's experience would be. So remind me to like uh, email her something about that. But yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I don't know where I was going mm -hmm. with that. So you can <laughs> jump in now <laughs> while I try to mm -hmm. figure out. Yeah, I know it's interesting too, because you speaking to like the, that kind of like hierarchy or like people being accepted or not expect accepted because of language mm -hmm. is interesting because I remember the summer after my my soft my senior year of high school I went to Japan mm -hmm. for 10 days it was with like a big group it was a exchange trip so sorry I wasn't I'm cracking my knuckles if that bothers me <laughs> no, I do this all the time sorry <laughs> no yeah and then it was weird because people saw my last name they're like oh wow you're Japanese mm -hmm. um and then they would see my name on paper, but then I saw this with the host family. I feel like they saw my face and was like, you don't really look Japanese. Like, I think a lot of people get confused about like what ethnic group within like Asia I'm part of because I, in Japan, I don't think I look very Japanese, but like within like Vietnamese circles, I don't necessarily look super Vietnamese at How the same time. How does one look Japanese though, you know? I think it's like the very traditional like facial structure. Like mm -hmm. if you see my sister, I'll show you a picture of my sister. She yeah. like looks very Japanese. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of people are hesitant to be like, oh, you don't look 
ex- well, I mean, yeah. like, because you were in Japan yeah. and you were living with a Japanese host mm-hmm. family, it's different for them to say that to you. Yeah. I mean, which is still kind of like, you know, that kind of mm-hmm. still hurts. But, like, yeah. versus some dude off the street who's yeah. like, you don't look Japanese, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Sorry. Continue. Yeah, no, yeah. Th- I mean, I've been getting that from, like, different people in my family mm-hmm. for a while. But, because it's, like, that weird thing again, like, it's as a mix, as a multi-ethnic person it's like kind of that weird like thing of like what traits you get from like each side of the mm-hmm. family like mm-hmm. how much of one side of the family look versus another but that's like a whole different story for a whole another day um but i remember going and then again the first question I always asked is well do you speak japanese um and i was like no um and then it felt like kind of weird to be in that space because i went on a group i went in a group with i think all of us were at least part Japanese and like we were all from the US so we all like spoke English and most of us didn't even speak Japanese but you could see there was like kind of this weird dynamic where it was we were accepted in so far as like being put with a host family but like it was being completely dependent on them of like translating things navigating um you know and I always like saw people like seeing our big group of like me and my partner and like our host family like us moving around throughout like different like tourist spots of like other like Japanese people like kind of looking at us I'm like yeah we totally stick out like sore thumbs and it's it's weird too because you think I think especially as an Asian American I would don't feel necessarily totally accepted here in the U.S. as like a non-white person Mm -hmm. but then going back to Asia you're still not accepted because you don't speak the language, you don't look necessarily like, or your mannerisms make it look like you're clearly not, you know, part, you didn't grow up in that culture. Um, like, totally immersed as, like, um, I mean, like, Asian American culture is very different from Asian culture. Mm-hmm. Like, that sort of, those sort of nuanced, yeah. like, habits. Um, so, like, again, like, I think language, again, was a huge barrier in terms of being fully uh, extended membership into a into that like sphere of the world Mm -hmm. so to speak um and it's like kind of i think interesting especially for a lot of immigrant folks in the u.s where especially non-white immigrant folks where Mm -hmm. we kind of do occupy that weird space of like not being totally accepted in one place but then again not being totally accepted in another place Mm -hmm. of like how do you like you know navigate those sorts of barriers but i think language again plays a huge part in that too and i think it's interesting because even if you were like you know checking all the check boxes mm-hmm. of like well she looks japanese even though she isn't you know full japanese mm-hmm. she speaks japanese and she like is able to read and write and she is like if she's not fully you know like adopting all the japanese mannerisms mm-hmm. and the little nuanced behaviors they have she's able to mimic them pretty well mm-hmm. it would still be like millions of other things that would rule you out from being like you know, the perfect Mm -hmm. modern Japanese girl, right? And I think especially when we're looking at parts of the world that have, like, pretty significant, um, like, diversity in terms of skin Mm -hmm. tone, you also have to consider colorism, Yeah. right? Because it's like, you could be the perfect, you know, Japanese youth, um, Mm -hmm. and if your skin is darker, you're still not going to be praised. Mm -hmm the way that somebody who is all the same things you are, Mm -hmm. but she's also lighter skinned. Yeah. You know, so 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of <laughs> different ways that people will kind of and you know, honestly, I debate whether they're doing this consciously or subconsciously, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Because I feel like sometimes I notice myself kind of doing it mm -hmm. and I'm just like, whoa, am I doing this when I'm <laughs> not paying attention to or is this just mm -hmm. something where like it's just so ingrained yeah. that I'm doing it even though I know how unfair it is and mm -hmm. how it feels to have like to be sandwiched between two communities that aren't mm -hmm. really like for you. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that also speaks to like relative privilege when you think about language is knowing a different like language, especially if you're talking in a US context. Mm -hmm. If you know a foreign language other than English, um, and that happens to be the language that you identify with, like ethnically or like mm -hmm. racially, I think, or mostly like ethnically. Um, but I think it's interesting to see because I think you see it a lot with like um, this is talking about a script for like men of color how they treat like women of color. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like you have that relative privilege, and a lot of people will just like latch onto that. Mm -hmm. And if someone doesn't have that relative privilege, mm -hmm. you like try and maintain that hierarchy between like you and like the other person. Yes, sort that's of true. Thing. That's true. I think language also is something that is often looked over when you think about how privilege plays out in like a very very nuanced and like very minute way you know that's interesting because that's like that's something that i wasn't even thinking about but it's totally true because think about it like you know everybody wants to think that when people who have been marginalized and oppressed mm -hmm. like get power or privilege like that they are, are going to do something good with it mm -hmm. and not use it against other people that might be you know like socially mm -hmm. or economically um below them mm -hmm. and I'm using quotes right now but yeah and I just think it's interesting because a lot of people mm -hmm. when they do get that privilege they're so quick to <laughs> use it to like push other people mm -hmm. down and I'm just like sis but did you not know what it felt like mm -hmm. because exactly. it feels awful so why mm -hmm. would you want to like and it's just based on such arbitrary things that mm -hmm. it's not even worth being like <laughs> I am better than you but by some like messed up definition mm -hmm. from like 200 years yeah, ago, exactly. you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't know, it's just interesting. And it definitely it makes sense though, because like a lot of the people and a lot of these communities that mm -hmm. don't, ha that have a native language that isn't English, they are used to what it feels like mm -hmm. to be alienated mm -hmm. and marginalized and oppressed mm -hmm. and... I mean, just the pure frustration of not being able to communicate with other yeah. people. And then they go and they're like, you know what, you're not fully mm -hmm. Japanese because you don't speak mm -hmm. or you don't read or you don't write or like we won't even acknowledge you as like half, you mm -hmm. know, for example, yeah. is is interesting. And I think, I don't know, I think that a lot of these uh, theories that people have about, you know, like society and social structures and stuff like that. It all makes sense, but then you put it into, like, the scope of how humans really act and mm -hmm. behave and just, like, the things that humans are prone to, mm -hmm. like, jealousy and, you know, selfishness, and it's just, like, the theory completely changed, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, it's like all of a sudden you're part of this exclusive group, and now you you're want like, to like, wow, this feels good. Yeah, I like, like this privilege. I know, right? Yeah. It's like, within my own little community, I'm suddenly you know, not, especially in the U.S. context, I'm not only, you know, able to speak that foreign language that my community, like, generally speaks around the world, 
but I can also speak English. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, that's a huge like power like combo right there because you can navigate both you know spaces fairly well in terms of just like mm-hmm. a, if you're talking about peer communication yeah. sort of you know issues. Yeah, and you know I think it's interesting because I was just like literally while you were talking I was thinking about this and I think our experiences with mm-hmm. language because we both don't look white. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at us and you think we look white get your eyes checked yeah for real because there's some people who are able to kind of like navigate between those two Mm -hmm. worlds um and they don't look like you know a person of color Mm -hmm. or somebody or they're like ethnically ambiguous exactly right but at least they're ethnically ambiguous in like and they're like hold on let me find this word they're like shifted to the white ethnically mm-hmm. ambiguous they're more white you know what i'm saying yeah. yeah like they're ethnically ambiguous in the sense that they look white but they also might be something else yeah but also they look white mm-hmm. you know and i think that us uh kind of like well at least for me you know mm-hmm. going between multiple different worlds and like their languages is very different than somebody who has the same speaking, you know, mm-hmm. like experience and language knowledge that I do, but they look white. Yeah. And the way that we would be received, I think also is like when you have people who are not people of color and they are able to speak a language like honestly even decently well. Mm-hmm. Like they get so much praise for being yes. able oh my God. to speak yes. that language mm-hmm. when it's not their mother tongue and they have no real reason to mm-hmm. like go and learn it besides just them wanting mm-hmm. to. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna at right now a lot of ex- like current like white expats in Asia. Mm-hmm. I think Asia is now, especially China, huge economy. Like that's where a lot of companies are going. It's a huge market um, for people to you know really go and try and like gain a lot of footing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of, you know, you see a lot of um, American expats going over to China and explaining the fact that they're, a lot of them are white, so explaining the fact that they're white and are able to speak the language mm-hmm. um, and are able to navigate between these two spaces, but suddenly get a lot more legitimacy than, say, like, a woman of color who, or specifically a Chinese woman who is also, might also be a Chinese-American woman who can speak both languages. But all of a sudden, you know, she's a woman of color versus, like, this white guy who is able to speak, you know, fluently mm-hmm. or even just, like, enough to get through a business meeting and stuff exactly. like that. Exactly. Which is, honestly, you'd be surprised. It's not that much. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I, I, just, I just think that it's interesting because people, especially, like, people who are not people of color, mm-hmm. people who are white, get so much more credit for doing things that people of color do um just because it's like wow this person you know really like took the initiative to learn this language Mm -hmm. and then that's very clear favoritism Mm -hmm. yeah there right and it's Mm -hmm. the hierarchy of like wow this person's so smart Mm -hmm. and like they speak so well and i've seen people who are not iranian or don't identify as like persian or Mm -hmm. whatever um and they're white speak Farsi and just butcher the language Mm -hmm. but they get still so much credit Mm -hmm. and so much praise for being even like relatively proficient Mm -hmm. in it and I'm just like are we really praising Mm -hmm. this person for like saying a Mm -hmm. sentence you know it's interesting too because I think they're dual concepts right there I just like thought of it right now where it's almost as if like a lot of like people and like not 
non-people of color, so like white people, especially learning foreign languages, especially languages that are spoken by, you know, a large POC community. Um, it's almost as if like that's a new colonial like method yes, idea of like uh, you're now you're retweet. <laughs> you're now inserting yourself and trying to become a member through the language because you're not gonna obviously not gonna yeah. blend in. Oh my god! Wow! So, I just got chills. <laughs> I mean, I'm just like thinking now like that's so imperialistic, colonial, and like so insidious in a way of like really trying to insert yourself and insert whiteness and like those communities especially back in those countries when for you're real, for talking real. about neocolonialism as you know a lot of this you know new economies like popping up around the world and the u.s trying to insert their influence on those mm-hmm. um emerging economies through you know shady means yeah or whatever um i think that is something that's interesting too and i had another thought and then i lost it oh, sorry was it my scream <laughs> no <laughs> i think i got really into like this whole idea of that it's really it really is like part of neocolonialism that I think mm-hmm. people often will forget about is that if you can gain membership through the language you get so much more legitimacy that and also like people going to like Africa and like other parts of <laughs> the world being like oh my god I'm here to help you let me build you a house that you know is very very like publicly broadcasted all mm, over yeah. my social media and let me disappear after i finish it exactly <laughs> and not even worry about like why do i feel the need to go to africa mm-hmm. to better africa yeah. when my own community mm-hmm. needs help you know but yeah back to what you were saying about the whole like neo-colonialism that's part of the reason i think why i just like i let french kind of fade out mm-hmm. um because even though i Uh, Like I said, it's something that sticks with me really easily, and it's something that I don't have to work to maintain. I still like to kind of like, because the brain's a muscle, right? So Mm -hmm. you want to like flex that muscle and make sure that there's certain parts of your brain that maybe you haven't like worked in a while, that Mm -hmm. you still work. Um, And I think honestly, part of the reason why I was like, eh, French can kind of like go is because French is a very colonial language. Mm -hmm. And I hate that because in North Africa, like if you look up, you know, any of the large North African countries like Egypt or Morocco or Tunisia, Algeria, Mm -hmm. whatever, like one of their first few nationally spoken languages is French French. because the French were Mm -hmm. there and they had their hands all over that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just something I hate because you go to like, North Africa and you know even throughout Africa like Mm sub-Saharan Africa there's um there's there were French people there there were Spanish people there there were British people there were were Dutch people Mm -hmm. like literally South Africa a lot of the major cities are like very very Dutch Mm -hmm. names and I think that that erasure and almost Mm -hmm. like erasing Arabic as the primary language for North Africa um, and just having that be that and then mm-hmm. minor dialects kind mm-hmm. of spoken in more concentrated areas you're having like a battle almost between mm-hmm. like people speaking Arabic and people speaking French mm-hmm. and who do you see who's usually speaking French it's people mm-hmm. who are like more what is it like white collar that's like yeah I guess they're like higher exactly like higher in society yeah. But, you know, like, if you go to, like, the middle of the desert in Mm -hmm. villages, nobody's really speaking French. They're all speaking Arabic. So Mm -hmm. it definitely is, like, a form of mobility and, Mm -hmm. like, ability to, like, ascend to the next level, Mm -hmm. you know? And, like, having that skill is very Mm -hmm. much, like, oh, you know, 
and I just hate it. Like when you go to any like foreign country, really, but especially in North Africa, and you can hear mm-hmm. people speaking French, and I'm like, come on, yeah. Like, it's just one of those things where, yeah, imperialism happened, what, like 200 years ago, mm-hmm. but it's very much still alive mm-hmm. and it's happening. And like you were saying, it's happening under our eyes, mm-hmm. like right under our noses most of the time. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, and it's like, it's that's also reason, a reason why I like kind of let go of French too, because I was taking all these classes and I was like, the French were in Vietnam. Yeah, I was so, I was so bothered by the fact that we were really glossing over the fact that France colonized so much of the world. Um, I mean, I wouldn't be here if France hadn't gone. I mean, a lot of countries went into Vietnam, but French went into the French went into Vietnam, wouldn't leave, even though they were clearly like gonna have to like leave by force or by will, um, and you know destabilized the entire like country and destabilized the whole like region mm-hmm. in general. Um, Shout out to the Spanish in the Philippines too, bro. Yeah, and the U.S. too. Yeah. I'm gonna put that Literally out there everywhere. Um, um, yeah, no, and it's just like what frustrates me too when you're thinking about language as a colonial too, tool is that now modern Vietnamese is so influenced by the French language. Mm-hmm. We use a lot of the same accents. Uh, a lot of you know the food that we have that is now ingrained of within part of the Vietnamese language mm-hmm. is you know. French. We have a dish that is honestly one of my favorite dishes. Mm-hmm. It's a great breakfast dish if anyone wants to, wants to try it out. It's called pâté chaud. Mm-hmm. And so... Very French sounding. It's a, it's literally spelled the same way as the French spelling of pâté, mm-hmm. like, you know, liver pâté, and chaud, like hot. Mm-hmm. And it's just like a meat pie. And like, y'all did not have to give that a French name. Yeah. It's not French. Well, I think... Actually, looking at it, it's it's a French it's French origin, but now so part it's a part of the culture now, and it's like that root of colonialism isn't gone. It's still, it's like now ingrained in the culture, and it's something that you can't detach. Which I think, yes, they're physically out of the country, mm-hmm. but they're still there. Mm-hmm, <laughs> you can't sure. you can't take them out like how a lot of North African countries use French as their you know main national language. Mm-hmm. Still, I think it's just uh, yeah, know. and I think like. You know, sometimes, especially if you're not from, like, the parts of the world that we're talking about, it's easy to be like, well, just don't, like, learn French then, Mm -hmm. or, like, whatever. But I know literally every single North African person I know speaks Arabic and French, Mm -hmm. as well as English. And, like, even Pauline, uh, our lovely... What's her position? She's our office manager. Yeah, our, our lovely office manager over at OML. She, she speaks Vietnamese, French, and English, yeah. right? And, yeah. like even that generational difference both generations Mm -hmm. are still learning French and it's very much a thing where it's like you should know it just Mm -hmm. because it's so functional and so widely used yeah yeah so that's so much here with language Mm -hmm. I mean but then I guess circling back to the core question here is language part of that social construct and does language how much of an influence does language have in how you identify? Mm, because I've always had a hard time because I've been proud to be Japanese and Vietnamese, mm-hmm. but I don't speak either language and I've always felt like that's been kind of a mark against me in a weird way when I'm like, it shouldn't necessarily be. Because Do you ever I wish that you knew it though? Sometimes. There are times where I'm like, I really wish I knew, specifically Vietnamese. So my grandmother now, she's like in her 80s close to 90 Mm -hmm. 
she, I mean, she speaks English and she speaks Vietnamese, but her English isn't that great. Um, and a lot of like our family, as they've gotten older, they've just stopped speaking English because there's just too much thinking involved, mm-hmm. um, quite frankly, and it's just hard. Um, Especially picking up a language when you're, yeah, you know, older. Like not even like old, old, but like literally above twenty five. Mm-hmm. Picking up a language becomes significantly harder. Like I was saying, my parents and I came here when we immigrated to America when I was five, and my parents both still have accents, even mm-hmm. though they've been submerged in American culture literally for what sixteen years, mm-hmm. and. Sorry, that was all I was going to say. Continue. Yeah. No, yeah, it's just, like, I feel sad because there's so much, there's so many stories there, mm-hmm. um, especially that I want to hear about in terms of, she grew up in a weird, she was born right around the time when the French were moving out of Vietnam, mm-hmm. and then she was born, strange, it, funnily enough, in the north, mm-hmm. and was kind of part of that whole journey of, like, when she moved from the north to the south of Vietnam. She kind of moved, and her grew up alongside both like the uprising of the communist regime in the north and when she had moved from the communist regime in the north to the south and then had to deal with when she like got to like the age where she had children Mm -hmm. and had to like raise her children in Vietnam that was when the big conflict happened between the north and the south and then not even getting into the U.S. trying to insert themselves Mm -hmm. into the conflict and things like that so she's seen it like literally all of it in Vietnam she was born towards the tail end of coloni- French coloni- mm-hmm. colonialism, went through the inner the interconflict, mm-hmm. had to go through pretty much, you know, I would say, like, American imperialism there. Yeah. Especially um, with the Vietnam War. Exactly. And then, so there's so many stories there, but I'm like, I don't think she'll be able to tell me that in English because mm-hmm. she had, I think what she does a lot is she'll translate in her mind and then try to tell us, mm-hmm. but there's so much there that's lost in translation that I'm like, to know yeah you know and I think just like it's really interesting because English is I think from like people who uh, know multiple languages Mm -hmm. or like who teach English and know more about like the linguistics of different languages English is like one of the hardest languages English is so hard because it just doesn't make sense there are so many arbitrary rules that like exactly that we have like 50 like like, me me you're 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 like they all sound the same Mm -hmm. just me saying them but like we all know the difference between them Mm -hmm. because we're fluent in English, Mm -hmm. right? But for somebody who's, like, trying to pick up English or, like, really needs it to be able to survive Mm -hmm. in this country, like, it's one of those things that is, like, a gatekeeping measure, Mm -hmm. like, to distinguish between people Mm -hmm. who are, like, actually fluent Mm -hmm. and therefore, like, at least verbally, Mm -hmm. you know, proficient enough to pass into, like, normal American society. and then people like maybe my parents or people in my parents' generation who don't have mm-hmm. that ability because it just doesn't make sense to them, yeah. you know? And sometimes I wonder if like the arbitrary nature and like how abstract English is, mm-hmm. is, you know, like purposely mm-hmm. was it designed yeah. to be a gatekeeping tool. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we mentioned it yet, but we need to talk about the fact that there is no national language for the u.s mm-hmm. we just decided to use english because that's yeah we were originally called the colonies of britain mm. but we still don't necessarily have it's not like a requirement that everything has to be in english yeah but yet everything is and mm-hmm. it's like who are we excluding then from like you know and who's determining the fact that we are mm-hmm. a language that is unofficially officially speaking english you know yeah and then like not just that but then also looking at like 
what kinds of English do we use, you know? Mm-hmm. And then when you go from, like, various parts of the U.S., like, there are those, like, vernaculars. Mm-hmm. And even across various, like, racial groups, there might be different vernaculars. So it's, like, who's making these decisions? And then when you're looking at who's making those decisions, who are they actively excluding mm-hmm. from, you know, again, membership into the larger group of what they deem as American society. I'm using air quotes here. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's uh, it's really interesting that you bring that up because I don't know much about it. Um, so I'm going to be like careful with my words because I don't want to say something that I don't know anything mm-hmm. about. But I think it's called abonics. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the general idea is that it's like a it's it's like a vernacular mm-hmm. or a type of like um, subdivision mm-hmm. of English that is like used a lot by different African-American or black populations throughout mm-hmm. the U.S. Mm-hmm. And just the fact that the way it's viewed mm-hmm. and like in comparison to English, mm-hmm. which is like white English, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, what is in your textbooks and mm-hmm. other places that is like a more professional setting, mm-hmm. right? It's interesting because we judge people based on how they speak mm-hmm. and if their speaking is not the way that we are holding an ideal to be, mm-hmm. then they're automatically less intelligent mm-hmm. than you know, like somebody who might have perfect English mm-hmm. but be an idiot, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's just so crazy how we make distinctions about people's intelligence and mm-hmm. their class level and mm-hmm. their like economic status or their financial mm-hmm. stability and their like home life mm-hmm. just based on how they speak. Like mm-hmm. it's crazy to me. So yeah, I don't know. That was that was a kind of like a segue. Mm-hmm. What were we talking about before? Yeah. I think it's just still like that big looming question of like language and identity mm-hmm. and how tied and how necessary it is mm-hmm. to have a language in order to identify with a certain group. You know? Oh yeah, I was gonna yeah. say, so you were talking about how your grandma is she kinda speaks English but she kinda mm-hmm. doesn't, you mm-hmm. know. Um Interestingly, in my family, so both my grandpas are dead, and mm-hmm. we only have my two grandmas, and neither of them speak mm-hmm. English. Interesting. And keep mm-hmm. in mind, my dad's mom has been in the U.S. for mm, 25 years, mm-hmm. and all she knows is, like, just the bare minimum to get her through her day, like, if mm-hmm. she wants to go grocery shopping or whatever, because she's really independent. Like, mm-hmm. she wants to live by herself. Mm-hmm. She wants to, like, go out and do her own grocery shopping and come mm-hmm. home and, like, you know, she doesn't like feeling like, you know, I just sit at home and I do whatever and mm-hmm. like people will do stuff for me just because I'm elderly. And so the fact that she's been able to like navigate mm-hmm. American society, and I mean, she lives in LA, right? So mm-hmm. she's fortunate in the sense that there's a lot of Iranian Americans mm-hmm. around her that, you know, might make that like navigation a little bit easier. But a lot of times, all she's surrounded by are Spanish and English speakers, mm-hmm. right? And the fact that she's been able to navigate so well and still, like, handle her own mm-hmm. in, like, a community or at least a culture that is very English-speaking when she doesn't speak is interesting. And also the fact that most of my relatives, if they're not, like, fluent in English, they're mm-hmm. most comfortable speaking in Farsi. Mm-hmm. And that definitely prevents my sister from interacting with them Mm -hmm. maybe at the Mm -hmm. level that she would want to Mm -hmm. because 
she is self-conscious when she speaks she has an accent Mm -hmm. right and so she's like you know I have an accent I don't want to speak but also at the same time like I can't speak to them in English Mm -hmm. because they don't understand Understand, English and then there's that barrier where multiple different relatives and I have been able to like communicate and connect with on Mm -hmm. a different level and my sister hasn't had that privilege Mm -hmm. because she just doesn't speak Mm -hmm. right and I think that contributes to like maybe just like family dynamics and Mm -hmm. how she might feel left out when you know it's just not something that was a priority for her Mm -hmm. for whatever reason right um or maybe something she felt like she needed to Mm -hmm. maintain in order to like preserve her culture but yeah it's just family dynamics and how like because you're you have a gap between the older generation and the newer generation Mm -hmm. if you eliminate like a common language right and I think that part of the reason why I even was so keen on maintaining Farsi and fluency in Farsi is because I want to ask my grandmother's questions mm-hmm. that I know I won't be able to ask them when they're dead. Do you know yeah, what I'm saying? Exactly. Like all of this information that they have, mm-hmm. only they can share that with me. Mm-hmm. And they feel most comfortable doing it in Farsi. Mm-hmm. And there's certain nuances to languages, especially like love languages. Mm-hmm. You know, like we always think about the very whitewashed like French and Italian mm-hmm. love languages, but Farsi is a love language Mm -hmm. in the sense that it's very poetic, right? And so there's certain things that you can communicate in Farsi Mm -hmm. that you can't communicate using the same sentence but in Mm -hmm. English, Yeah, you know? And I think that also, like, it's a preservation of culture. Mm -hmm. It's like a lineage where you have your, you know, like your bloodline and you can trace it back to Mm -hmm. certain, you know, countries or tribes or communities or whatever, but it's also, like, verbal Mm -hmm. history. Yeah. And I just think that's really, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. We could literally talk about this for like 10 years. I know, right? It's, and yeah, yeah it's, it's crazy. So. It's like super interesting too, because then it also like begs the question of, are you, it's almost as if you're like asking like, you know, that kind of tension between self-identifying versus like other people identifying for you, are you yeah. for you? So it's like, they might take language into consideration, but you might not. Again, it's like a very interesting, you know, food for thought. I don't know if we actually answered the question. No, I don't. Like I don't think we did. But <laughs> that's okay because it's one of those things where, ow, where you can't really answer it and give a definitive answer across mm-hmm. the board because there's so many different groups that you want to make sure mm-hmm. you include. And like for me, I don't know. I've always thought that people of color um, and other like marginalized groups. We already have so much against us. Why would we want to, like, divide ourselves up within Mm -hmm. the group and, like, put our energy towards who has privilege where and in Mm -hmm. what situations instead of just being, like, let's just learn our lesson about what it feels like when privilege is used against you Mm -hmm. and when you don't have it. And let's just strengthen our community and be better for all of us across the mm-hmm. entire social structure for everybody who identifies as that particular marginalized group mm-hmm. you know so is there anything else that you wanted to like touch on i don't think so i think i think this is a good spot to end it's yeah. kind of a up in the air question for, for folks sure. who are going to be coming to our difficult dialogue yeah please um, do yeah please do this is one of the difficult dialogues i think i'm most excited about having mm-hmm. um in my four years at santa clara so <laughs> It's going to be a good one, and hopefully this 
podcast um, helped bring to light some thoughts or gave you some ideas for, you know, where your head is probably going to be for the difficult dialogue. Um, Yeah, for sure. And also, I was kind of thinking about maybe, like, you know, um, like, our, our contact information is available on our Facebook page, on our website, and all of that. And so we kind of want to, like, pose a question for the next podcast. Is this something that you guys, as a community, as, like, the Santa Clara community, are interested in? Mm-hmm. And is it something that is useful to you? And, you know, like, maybe even if you play it in the background, is it something that you feel is necessary or it fills a gap where, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. there was an empty space? Because... Uh, Kayla and I were kind of thinking about Black History Month is coming up um, really soon, and so we were thinking about maybe the next episode we do would have somebody from either like the African American slash Black community, um, or somebody who is very like deeply ingrained in like Black history, and they know a lot about it. Like I think Kayla mentioned maybe having Dr. Hazard from the History Department come join us. So if that's something you guys are interested in, definitely please let us know. Um, Give us feedback. (laughs) For sure. And this is the first podcast, so obviously, you know, if it's a little choppy, you're going to have to excuse us there. But we have a million ideas (laughs) for this. So, yeah, just let us know what you guys think, and thanks for tuning in. Yeah, just before we go, just want to shout out OML. Find us at su.edu slash OML. Um, We have Instagram. We have Facebook. We're everywhere. Find us at 832 Market Street. Mm-hmm. We have a whole house. Um, stop by. It's a fun place to be. And we have candy and stickers. Lots of candy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and yeah, just shout out also to Joanna, Dr. Joanna Thompson. Yes, our, doctor. Yes. Um, our awesome Noble Director. Yeah. And thanks for tuning in.